It's really great because the episodes, they all feel of a piece, but they all have like a little special extra sauce in them. And it's totally the writer. And I think the writers on staff appreciate it because so much of what ends up on TV is their work. It's all them. Like you can feel it. And so I think it makes them more invested in the show. And the short answer is just get amazing writers. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Courtney Kang is on the show. Courtney is a veteran television writer who was an executive producer on How I Met Your Mother and was there for its entire nine-season run. She was also the co-executive producer on Fresh Off the Boat and worked as a supervising producer on the Netflix series Pretty Smart. Her most recent project is Doogie Kami Aloha MD, a reimagining of the classic TV series Doogie Hauser for Disney+, which premiered to rave reviews and is nearing its final episode, which airs tonight actually. Inspired by Courtney's own childhood and family dynamics, Doogie Kami Aloha follows the adventures of a mixed-race 16-year-old girl who is juggling a budding medical career and life as a teenager while growing up in Hawaii. Shot in Oahu, this was an extremely personal project for Courtney, who was born to a Hawaiian and fourth-generation Korean father and an Irish Catholic mother from Pennsylvania. Though Courtney grew up in Pennsylvania, she was born in Hawaii, so being able to set and film the series in modern-day Hawaii to properly represent and introduce a core young audience to the local culture she grew up with was important to her. I've seen the first eight episodes of this show, and it does a great job of completely reimagining the original Doogie series, to the point where it stands on its own as a great family sitcom, even if you've never seen or heard of Doogie Hauser. But it also pulls older folks in who grew up in the Doogie Hauser era, like me. In this chat, Courtney and I talk about how the show started off as a Doogie reboot, but quickly evolved into a series based on her own family and experiences. We also talk about how she picked her team of writers, how she and her team were able to transform a medical center in Oahu into a film set, and the challenges of having a young family in Los Angeles while being a showrunner on a show shot in Oahu. Finally, we talk about her path into television writing and how diversity in writers' rooms translates into richer, more compelling stories on the screen. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Courtney Kang. Welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I am uh, eight episodes in to the season, and we're here to talk primarily about Doogie Kamiloha, MD, but also your writing career. Tell us about this show and how you got involved in the creation of the show. Yes. You know, I worked on Fresh Off the Boat for a long time, and Melvin Marr and Jake Kasdan were executive producers on that show, along with Nanach Khan, who became a dear friend of mine. And that's one of the things I love about working on shows is you just sort of become lifelong friends with the folks there, or at least that's my hope, and that's what I most enjoy about it. And so Fresh Off the Boat ended, and Melvin Marr was looking to talking to 20th and thinking about the properties that they had. You know, there's this real push for studios and networks to look at existing IP. How can we reinvent this? You know, those conversations. And Melvin had the idea of doing a Doogie Howser reboot centered on an Asian girl. 
And Melvin and I go way back. And so he called me and he was like, what do you think? And I was like, it's great. It's a great idea. And then I was like, but like, how are you doing this? Like, why is it called Doogie? Like, is Neil Patrick Harris involved? Is it like, he's the dad or it's like the same hospital and he runs it. Like, how are you building that connective tissue to support this? Mm -hmm. And he's a total producer. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's stuff to figure out. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) yeah, there's a lot to figure out. And he's like, do you want to do it? Come on, come on. It'll be great. And I was like, there's so many reboots. And I was like, I I don't know. And he was like, you know, everybody at the studio and network is really high on this. And to me, it was a little bit like, but why? Like, you know, you can reboot anything, but, you know, why is it sort of worth not only the audience investing, but selfishly, you know, me investing in this. Right. And, um, but I did think it was a really good idea. And so it was sort of percolating in the back of my head. And one day I had the idea that, you know, all these reboots are always set in the world of the existing show or movie or whatever it is. But I was like, what if you did a reboot that was set in our real world where Doogie Hauser is just a show in the 90s that we all know exists? Like the, the characters are sort of operating from our framework and it's just a nickname. And she hates it. She's like, it has nothing to do with me. Like, I I wasn't even born during that time. And Mm -hmm. then if it's a nickname, you're just sort of off to the races and you're not saddled with all that exposition that I think is sometimes really tricky in these reboots. And I sort of like the tongue in cheekness of it. That's just like, oh yeah, she's a doogie. And like, we go along, you know, we would use, we used to joke in the writer's room sometimes as we got deeper into the season, somebody like a writer would be like, have we called her Doogie in a while? We're like, oh, shoot, we should go back. Somebody should call her Doogie so we can like keep that idea going, you know? And so I thought that was a really fun way to approach it, but I still wasn't totally convinced. And it's because I kept passing on it. I kept saying pass, like, I don't like, I want to, there's other things I'm working on that, you know, seem a little more interesting to me right now. And so I called my friend Melvin and I was like, I have an idea for you. Like, I don't want to do it, but here's my idea that I think, would make this work, like take this and go get a writer. And I think it would be great. And he was like, I'm not going to get a writer. Like, it's your idea. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And then I had the thought you could set it in Hawaii. And that's when I got really excited because, Mm -hmm. you know, I was born in Hawaii. My dad's from there. um, My family's all there. And the thing that got me really excited is Hawaii is such a Asian native Hawaiian friendly place. And it would enable you to populate the show with those folks in such an organic way. And everybody goes through Hawaii that it just opened. There's so much rich diversity. And I got really excited about doing a show about a family that just lives in Hawaii. Like this is just how it is. And so once that became part of it, I got really excited by it. And it also sort of felt special and personal to me because it was my family. And so it, it sort of was the thing that was like, okay, this now I want to do this. Like now I'm invested in this. I see an opportunity here. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of how it started. What I love about this show is that it has this reference back to Doogie Hauser, which makes it kind of nostalgic. So it has the reboot aspect of it, but in a good way, there's a lot of really bad reboots out there. But what it also does is like a really good family-friendly sitcom does. It has humor for young people, but it also has these 
pop culture references from the 80s and 90s that allows the adults to feel like they're in on the, on the joke too. And it's the perfect mix of age-appropriate humor for the entire family. And also, I've read a lot of interviews going into this with you, because I don't want to repeat, have you repeat yourself too much. But the personal aspect of this is remarkable, because my view of Disney and big networks like ABC, my view is that it is so corporatized that it's almost impossible to put a personal touch on a show. Like there would never be one person who is calling the shots to say, you know what, this is going to look like my family. And it's going to be in Hawaii because that's where I grew up and that's where my family is. And there's going to be a middle sister and she's the protagonist. And then there's an older brother and little brother, just like my family. And you know, the, the mother's going to be white, just like my mother. And so you have this makeup that is very personal to you and these personal touches that you've put in the show, like watching the octopus in the washing machine, that type of thing. So tell us about the logistics of being able to pull that off at such a huge network when you're not the president of the network. Yes, um, that's a great question. And I can tell you that you've done a lot of research on the show. So thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny, you sort of tapped on one thing, you know, Jake Kasdan, who directed, you know, he did New Girl and he directed the Jumanji movies. He directed the pilot and he used to always say, and it always used to make me laugh because he used to always say for a Doogie Hauser reboot, this show is so personal. Like you wouldn't think <laughs> a Doogie Hauser reboot would be based so much on, on one person's life, like you're saying. And so mm -hmm. we would laugh about it. You know, I think I'm very lucky in that when it became about my family and set in Hawaii, but I was very lucky in that they got excited about those personal touches and it was never a fight and it was never a battle. I think they smartly wanted the show to be respectful and feel personal. And they really did give me and the whole team free reign. You know, we got to go to Hawaii. We got to go to all these places. There were things that, you know, they would sometimes question. And then once we sort of stated why it was important to us or what it meant, they would go, okay, great. And, you know, sometimes making shows not all about white people leads you to sometimes tricky and difficult conversations. And, but there are conversations that you should have. And, my hope is that those difficult conversations never stop these kinds of shows from being made because it's good. It's good to have these conversations and you're not always going to get everything right, but it's all about being respectful and being as true as you can to the story you're telling. And so we were very lucky in that they once, you know, they were like, great, go ahead, make it your own. And it's one of the things the network most loves about the show, which I think is really encouraging. You know, and I think for writers, the takeaway too is there's so much IP out there and it can seem a little bit like what a little daunting almost because, you know, 20 years ago when I first, you know, started doing this, it, you know, I used to go in and pitch a show 
And it would be, this is me and my best friend. This is me and my family. And it was like, great. And either you got to shoot the pilot or you didn't, but you didn't need IP and the director who just did Jumanji to make stuff happen. <laughs> you know, I love Jake and I'm happy that he, I have him in my, you know, my arsenal of friends to help make stuff happen. But back in the day, it, it, it was very different. And so I think the trick as writers is to figure out how to work within that system. Like, you know, Doogie, I think, is a great example of, you know, something that at first didn't really feel like anything personal or a story I was interested in telling. And slowly I began to see a way of how I could make it my own. And so hmm. and I think as, as writers, it's it kind of presents an interesting challenge, you know, to sort of take the constrictions of this is a thing. And how do you tell your story? How do you infuse what you want to say into this thing, because at the end of the, the day, IP or these reboots or titles, it just makes everyone you're pitching to more comfortable. And you're starting from a place that people get it. I was sort of, that was one of the interesting things I learned too doing this is that there is an ease to it that there isn't when you're self-generating your own idea. Like when you come in with your own idea, you're starting from scratch and trying to build the tone, the world, the characters. This is the thing. When I went in to pitch this reboot, it's like, so, you know, Doogie Howser, there's like a whole series that people are already starting from. Right. And so, yeah. yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge. Thinking about this logistically, that makes total sense that you would need that tether to something that they understand. And the tether is Doogie, you're rebooting Doogie. And then over time to make it special, to make it have some long lasting power, you have to have a personal touch to it because otherwise it's just a gimmick. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think had I gone in trying to pitch a show that was like, it's based on my family, it's a family show. It's based on my family and it's set in Hawaii. Right. I think people would have been like, oh, that's interesting. But like there wasn't, a, there wouldn't be enough of a hook or there wouldn't be there wouldn't be enough pressure on them to say yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a Doogie Hauser reboot here, but here's what's cool about it. It's in Hawaii and it's based on her family. So it's going to be personal. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly like you see how, I'm not saying it's right, but I think you see how the ball starts right. rolling. You you ha you have to dangle the shiny object in front of the, the producer, the, the, the studio executive to hook them, to at least give them an idea of, how this is going to play and how it's going to connect with people nostalgically. You have a nice mix of comedy and dramatic situations, but you also culturally, for, for instance, talking story that I think it was episode eight, where you have Dr. Clara, is that her name? The mother? Mm -hmm, Clara, yes. Clara and Benny. So Clara and Benny are talking about how Clara can really connect with people. And the way she needs to do that is to basically be present and be mindful in a way that the native islanders, native Hawaiians know how to do. And how do they do that through talking story? And it, it's a cool lesson that you are able to cram into a 30-minute sitcom. So how do you, as the showrunner or show creator, work on those storylines? They're presented to you by the writers in the writer's room and that you're just sort of approving them? Are you creating these ideas? Tell us about the logistics of working with the writer's room and coming up with themes like that in a show like this. Yes. I lucked out in that I hired the most amazing writing staff ever. And 
we all like completely love each other and had the best time possible. And you just, it was, we did it all on zoom, like months after it ended, we all got together and like saw each other for the first time. It was so funny. Like we used to have conversations, like how tall do you think everyone is like, I'm tiny. I'm barely five foot two in real life. And some people were like, no way. I thought you were like five, four or five, five. And I was like, oh my gosh, thanks. You know? <laughs> like, because we just had never seen each other in person. Yeah. And so it was, it was a very odd experience, but what we did was we sort of started, we started from a sort of overall place of talking about each character, like a lot about each character in the beginning. And then we talked a lot about like, what's the sort of arc of the season, like where they sort of start emotionally and where they're going to go. And it's interesting because when you're running a room, you're, the tendency is to want to just like throw shit on a board. Like, let's break a story. Let's see what this is going to be. But I do think there's real value in taking the time to, we took like a solid two weeks of talking about like the people specifically, like, oh, like just like broad, broad stroke stuff. And it's not, it's funny because I, it's longer than the time I wanted to spend doing it. My dear friend, Matt Kuhn, who was like my number two on the show, who I worked with on How I Met Your Mother and Fresh Off the Boat, we've been working together for a really long time. He is a big believer in that. And I started to feel the pinch of like, we start shooting in like eight weeks. Like we got to just break a story. We got to go. But we kept coming up with really interesting stuff that you just sort of have to have faith is going to pay off down the line. Mm -hmm. And I will say, like, after those two weeks, we had so many episode ideas and we sort of had a sense of like the emotional arc of where the characters were going. And the writers all said that when they went off to write their drafts, because when you're a writer on staff, you know, you break the story, you go off. You are tasked with writing a script in the voice of these characters. And in our case, this was like a runaway train. We, based off the script, we got picked up to do 10 episodes. So as we were breaking all the stories for the episodes, we were also casting the leads and prepping the pilot. So they didn't have the benefit of watching a pilot or seeing who the, like we were just sort of going. Right. And a few folks said that like that time in the beginning was so valuable for when they went off on script because it felt like it informed who the characters were, what kind of jokes they would do. And so it's a combination, you know, we, we all started together. If I could, I would be all day in the room every day. I love, I love the room. And I think that that story breaking and the script is the most important piece of the process that like, once you hand, like, they could stand in a different way. The, the shirt could be a different shirt. Like production, you know, is also very important. But if that script isn't rock solid, like if each scene, you don't get what the idea is, the whole thing is a problem. Mm. And so I feel like that story breaking and the script is the best thing you can do to ensure success down the line. Because even if you have a great script, there's a multiple of ways that you could execute it that would all still be great. But if you have a not great script and a not great scene, chances are it's not going to work. So I sort of like to put my eggs in that early forming basket 
And so, yeah, we would do it together. But then, you know, I left to go to Hawaii to shoot the pilot and the room that I put together was fantastic. And they were able to keep it going and stories got broken without me. And then I would check in, you know, and talk about things and then we'd meet up. And one thing I learned is that on Zoom, rewriting on Zoom was difficult. And I didn't enjoy it, to be honest. Like I like rewriting in a room. It's so much more fun and engaging, like everybody in the boxes. And so what I ended up doing was having writers do multiple drafts of their scripts. Like, so I would read a script, give a bunch of notes, give it to the writer, do it again, do it again until the point where it was really just like punching jokes and stuff. And then we'd bring it back into the room. And what ended up happening as a result is each script is so much the original writer's work, which doesn't always happen on TV shows because of the room writing process. Mm -hmm. And so it's really great because the episodes all, they all feel of a piece, but they all have like a little special extra sauce in them. And it's totally the writer. And I think as the writers on staff appreciate it because so much of what ends up on TV is their work. It's a, it's all them. Like you can feel it. And so I think it makes them more invested in the show and the, the short answer is just get amazing writers. Yeah. That's the best way to do it. I would assume that the diversity in your writer's room is not only just ethnic diversity, but age diversity, because I'm seeing some age-related themes in the show with Benny you know, being in the senior circuit for surfing. And, and then you've got Kai and his issues with being a, a teenager, and then Brian and his uh, venture capital spirit that he has to, to start a business. You've got this wide variety of perspectives in the characters that I would think require, or at least it would be ideal to have older folks in the, in the writer's room, younger folks. What does that look like? We do. We have, um, and it's so funny because I am now the older folk. Like I remember when, like I, it's it, it's always crazy to me. Like I remember being like, I'm the single girl on staff, and now right. it's like I'm the mom of three. <laughs> you know? um, but yes, we have our our staff. We have more women than men, I believe. We have a lot of Asian folks on staff, and we have a wide range. You're right. There's myself. And there's this other lovely writer named Steve Joe, who's an Asian guy. And we laugh because we've both been in this business for like 20 years and have never worked together except for on this show. And our, our bit is that every staff, like before this, like once you get an Asian person, like you wouldn't hire a second Asian person. Like that would be <laughs> like, that would. You've done your work. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, once the quota was filled by either one of us that like it never. And it's so funny. We have like every single of our friends in common. Cause you know, we've worked on shows and been around. And so it's very funny, but yes, we we're the, we're the sea, we're the seasoned seasoned vets as it were. And then our one of our staff writers literally was finishing her last semester at Harvard while also working wow. on our show. Amazing. And so she was, you know, much, much younger. But we would, it would be so funny. Like we would ask them about, you know, the the hip things as it were. And mm -hmm. it's all my my 13-year-old daughter was also our pseudo teenage consultants. So okay. we would like ask her <laughs> things and she would like, um, it was funny. Like one time we were like trying to like pump her for stuff. And she was like, mom, that's so cringe. And we were like, oh, cringe. That's great. Like, like playing it in, you know? Does she get any writing credits on that? I know she should. She should. <laughs> that's funny. 
Yeah, the the show is so beautiful too because it's shot in Oahu, right? Yes. But are the studio scenes also shot there? Do you have a yes. studio set up? Okay. Yes. Our line producer, Justin McEwen, is he is a genius warrior of the highest regard at the height of the pandemic and flew out to Hawaii and worked with our locations department there, um, Amira, who's phenomenal. Like every location was is more breathtaking than the next. And they figured out where we shot. It's crazy. There's a, it's called John Burns Medical Center. It's an actual hospital. It's like a ho- it's like a teaching hospital. But they were in the midst of doing some construction, and so there were three floors that were empty. Mm. And we built a hospital set inside a hospital. <laughs> so it's like the coolest thing, like because there's all those pretty exteriors of the there's like hallways and the oceans behind them. That's all real. And then they built our hospital sets inside this exists. So we would use the like real exterior and the hallways. And then it was, and they put together this amazing Mm. thing. And then one of the floors had Lahela's bedroom. So that was also in the the real hospital set. Mm -hmm. And then there was the Kamealoha house, which is out in Waimanala, which was a real house that it was really hard to find the house because I was hell bent on finding a two-story house on the beach because Steph, the best friend, you know, from the original, the friend with Vinny would climb through Doogie's window. Right. And I was like, she's such a good friend. It has to be a second story window. Like it says everything you need to know about their friend. Like if it's a first story window, it just isn't. Yeah. Like it, that makes total sense now. Yeah. Yes. I was like hell bent on this. And everybody was like, you're not going to know. Like, she's just climbing in the window. We're not. Tra-. I'm like, trust me. It has to be. <laughs> it, it's a subconscious thing. Like, I felt so, so strongly about this. And I wanted a house on the beach. And like, I had this my list of things at the height of a. No big deal. Just a $20 million house. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But like, it can't. Then they would find these gorgeous <laughs> beach houses. I'm like, that's so fancy. Like, I wanted it to feel cozy and homey. Right. Um, and they nailed it. They found this amazing house with this amazing backyard that was like right on the beach that it it was. Uh, we were very lucky. Yeah. So five months in Hawaii. Did you take your daughters with you? I didn't. So it was. We were supposed to shoot in the summer, which was my hope. And then it was like, oh, Hawaii has low cases. The family will go. Everybody's Zooming. It. Like the kids will be out of school. Everybody's Zooming anyway. And then things sort of took longer to all happen. And we ended up shooting January of 2021. The, or no, February. February 1st, we started shooting. We were there prepping in January. And it was right when there was they decided to let my kid's school like opened a few hours a week. And so they were able to go and we were so excited to finally have them able to go to school. And so I ended up going on my own and my husband, who's also a writer, he works on American dad, the animated show now on TBS. He stayed back with our three daughters who were doing on like school Zoom while he was also uh, on American Dad, like running a room while like this was (laughs) happening. And I ended up being gone for 45 days. It was not the best. And because also because of COVID, like I couldn't fly back and forth. Right. It was like, yeah, this was before anybody was vaccinated. It was like, oh, well, if you travel, you should quarantine. Like it was it was uh, it was really challenging, but we got through it. 
As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. I saw some credits, some Bochco credits, but it wasn't Steven Bochco. It was yes. there were other Bochcos involved. So tell me about how the, that family got involved with uh, this project. There are. So Dana Bochco, um, who is married to Steven and who worked with him and like ran his company, and Jesse Bochco, uh, Steven's son, their producers, their executive producers on the show, and they sort of, they're kind of trustees of his material. And Jesse tells a really beautiful story that, you know, Stephen passed away. And before that, he was saying to Jesse, like, these are all yours. Like, I want you to take these, figure out what to do. Like these meaning shows. Yeah. Meaning the shows, meaning, you know, what he had built. And, you know, he's like, nothing would make me happier than, you know, figure, figure this out. He sort of, you know, almost gifted it Mm. to them. And so they took that very seriously. And, you know, they were executive producers on the show and they couldn't have been more lovely. And as soon as they heard like Hawaii and I started talking about my family, they were like, go, go, go. We love it. Whatever you want to do, like make this your own. They were so tremendously supportive. And then Jesse directed two episodes as well. And so, and it was really great because one of, he directed episode four where Walter has needs the appendectomy. And it's one of our first like hospital, like crazy ER, there's a bus crash, you know, and she's running with the gurney and he came, he's, he came more from the world of directing drama. So he did a bunch of Grey's Anatomy and those kinds of shows. And it was great because he really helped set the template of that, like medical procedure, you know, the ER is bustling feel of the show. And so we're so lucky we had him come aboard and those guys have been awesome. For people in our generation, it's kind of cool to see the legacy that those guys have with shows like this. And it's not just Doogie, but just an amazing catalog of entertainment. I'm wondering, because you have so much experience with sitcoms, and I don't know if it's called is it called multi-camera sitcoms or is that the way you describe them? Yeah. I mean, How I Met Your Mother was a multi-cam and then Fresh Off the Boat was a single cam. So Okay. All right. So you have so much street cred when it comes to sitcoms, Fresh Off the Boat and How I Met Your Mother. I mean, 180 some episodes of How I Met Your Mother. So you have this in your DNA in terms of the formula of how to tell a story in a very compressed amount of time and to give each character, the exact right amount of story and screen time. It's really cool to study the craft from that lens. But I'm wondering, as a writer, what you like about the constraints of that approach, that paradigm, and what is something that you would like to change over time? Or is it possible to change that formula? Maybe it's just part of how audiences consume this type of entertainment. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that makes that form, as you say, very challenging is the time constraints. You know, when you work on a network show, there's a delivery time that you have to hit every time. So it's like 
21 minutes and 32 seconds or 22 seconds or whatever, you know, or sometimes it's like, oh, we have a bachelor special. You, you only get 19 minutes, and 30, you know, whatever, <laughs> right. whatever it is, but you have a set delivery time and you have to fit your episode into that time, no matter what. And one of the really amazing things about working at Disney plus is there isn't a time restriction. Mm. There's like a, we want our episodes to be about a half hour, 27 minutes. You know what I mean? Like there's a target. Yeah. But what ends up happening is your episode gets to be as long as your story needs it mm. to be. Nice. And so we have episodes that are like 26 minutes. We have episodes that are 35 minutes. Like it's a wide, our show ends up being a wide span in what these episode lengths are. And I think one of the reasons why folks are so gravitating towards streaming and towards more shows like that, that aren't so constricted by time is they feel fresher and they feel more honest right. because what inevitably ends up happening is not every story needs 21 minutes and 32 seconds. You know, some might need 28, some might be done by 18, but now you're like, Padding stuff into it. And so, you know, I feel like network TV gets a bum rap sometimes, and folks are rightly sort of like, oh, I've seen this. It feels stale. It doesn't feel, it's not speaking to an audience. But I think the constraints that are put on the folks who are making those shows are so much greater than they are on folks who are making shows for Apple or HBO Max or, mm -hmm. you know, whoever it is. Like, you know, they can, their music budgets are bigger. They can say things like Starbucks or Pop-Tart, you know, yeah. and they aren't like, <laughs> or like Toyota, you know, or whatever it That's may funny. be. And when you yeah. work at a network, there's all these, your hands are tied behind your back a little bit. Yeah. I, I remember the first episode, I think it was the first or second where they were playing Creedence Clearwater Revival quite a bit of the song and i was thinking how did they do that oh it's disney of course that's how they do it yeah <laughs> they're able to you know buy the rights to really cool music and make the show special that way i would guess that having that discipline that you have from fresh off the boat and probably more so with how i met your mother which you know network and extremely tied to the clock it's easier to go from that paradigm to a little more loose paradigm where you can have the story guide you for how long it needs to be, as opposed to the reverse. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I know the writers used to joke sometimes they were like, how how many pages do you want our scripts to come in at? I was like, 20, 30, 32, 31, 29. <laughs> and it used to drive uh, my friend Matt Coon, who I do the show with, crazy because he is very like analytical. And, you know, I'm like, however long this story needs. And he's like, just give, right. let's say 31. Can we just say 31 pages? <laughs> Feels right. I'm like, okay, we'll say 31. <laughs> so tell us about your Carnegie Mellon roots and University of Pittsburgh and how important that was in your formation as a writer. It was very important. You know, I wanted to, I love TV and movies, musicals from the time I was this big. I did musical theater, all that stuff. And I thought I wanted to be an actress because I think as a kid, that's what you see. And I'm not a great actress and I'm not a great singer. And I took dance, like I'm a, not a great dancer. And I was like, 
I'm never, and I was smart enough to get that, like, I wasn't going to break through. And it was like devastating. Like, I was never going to get to be a part of this thing I wanted to be a part of. Mm. And it wasn't until it was literally my last class at University of Pittsburgh. I took a playwriting class because it was the only one that would like fit in with my schedule. And when I heard playwriting, like I just thought of like Shakespeare, like it felt like something that like didn't apply to me somehow. And I took the class and it like changed my life. I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Cause I've always liked writing, but like poetry wasn't like journalist. Like I couldn't find the right form of writing for me. And so when I took this class, I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is my life. Like this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And then I graduated. And so I was like, I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to be, I'm going to work in TV and movies. It'll be great. And I have what I call my false start. So I moved out to LA and I became a cocktail waitress. And I worked in Malibu and couldn't figure out, like, would drive by the Fox lot and was like, hi, guys, I want to work there. I have no idea how to do it. But and the playwriting teacher I had at Pitt suggested I apply to graduate schools. And I ended up applying to Carnegie Mellon. And I got a partial scholarship to go there. And I decided to do it. I, I was I really had hoped to stay in L.A., I applied to UCLA, like I really wanted to get into UCLA and because then I could stay in LA, like I sort of felt like a little bit like a failure that like I came to LA and now I have to go back to Pittsburgh and, Mm. but they were going to, it made the most sense for me to do that. And so that's what I did. And so I went to Carnegie Mellon. It was the most amazing experience. I learned so much and they really help you sort of connect the dots of not only like the craft of writing and this is how you do it, but to then just be smart about once you get out here, which is basically they're like, get whatever job you can. <laughs> is mm. their advice, like as a PA or so they're actually not just teaching you, you know, academics, but the practical aspect of working in the industry. They do. They they do a really good job of trying to set you up for that. There's a week that they do in May where you come out to LA for like, I think it's like four or five days. And they set up a bunch of meetings for you. Like we talked to like movie executives, talk to you. An agent came to talk to us. Like they do these, you know, they do these Aaron Sorkin talk to us. Like what? we do all, yes, <laughs> wow. it was crazy. But there is a weird thing sometimes about Carnegie Mellon. Like they would like bring directors in and like the advice they would give you is like, look, never let the studio change your final cut of a movie. And like, <laughs> oh we're all like, where should I live? Right. <laughs> I mean, like, how do I get a job as a PA? Right. <laughs> you know? like, and so there's this very like high, low kind of, you know, uh, I think Aaron Sorkin was like, dialogue is everything. And you're like, oh, okay, like, can I, <laughs> will you hire me or something? Um, but yeah, so they were very helpful. And then when I came back out here, I got a job as an assistant and sort of did that route and worked my way up the food chain and, you know, got people coffee and did all those things. And here I am. Yeah. Very conventional route. I mean, Carnegie Mellon is not conventional. I don't really talk to a lot of people who go through Carnegie Mellon, but amazing school from what I have read. But in terms of your path through the industry to where you are now, it sounds like you have like a grassroots, very conventional starting from the bottom and just working your way up a lot of hard work, a lot of low-level producing, mid-level producing, and then becoming a showrunner on a Disney Plus show. What an amazing journey. 
Yes. Thank you. Yeah. One of the weird things, the thing that really got me my first job when I started out here, I wanted to be a writer, wanted to be a writer. And then I worked on a sitcom called Daddio, which was Michael Chiklis is like a Mr. Like a Mr. Mom, like he's going <laughs> to stay home with the kids okay. and they call that a Daddio. And so like every other scene, they were trying to be like, like, like the mailman would answer, would open the door and he'd be there and he's like, what are you? It's, it's noon. What's a man doing home? And he's like, I'm a daddy Like it was, that was sort of the like gist of it in the early, like it was like the idea was insane that like a man was home taking care of the children was the. Oh, how times have changed. Yes. Yeah. So that was sort of the gist of the sitcom. And as I was working there, one of my jobs became trying to like, it was on a lot like parking spots sometimes on a lot or like tricky. And so it was my job to like help guard the parking spots for like like we were, we were, the show had been pulled from the air and we were making the shows and they weren't airing them. So it was, it's kind of like dark times at that point. Mm -hmm. And so like the studio and network comes in and it's like, this is like our lifeline to, you know, seeing the light of day. And so like, let's make sure they have parking spots. So they send me out there. <laughs> like, and I remember standing there and looking at like an orange cone because people would pull up and be like, move. And I'd be like, no, I'm kind of <laughs> saving this. And I remember like looking at an orange cone and being like, you're better at this job than I am. <laughs> like you're doing this more efficiently than me. But the studio and network would come. And this is like the early 2000s. And they had like seven jeans and like high heels and like Louis Vuitton bags. And they all had like this like perfectly like straight flat ironed hair. And they were like, we just came from Katsuya. Like I love sushi. And I was like, who are these like glamour girls that like I'm standing in cargo shorts, like saving parking spots for. <laughs> and they were like, oh, that's the studio and network. And then like we would do a run through and then these girls would give notes and they'd be like, I didn't like this moment. This isn't funny, like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and they'd like say it to the writers who were all sort of like, haven't seen daylight in like a week and we're like snacking. And I was like, oh, I, I don't want to be a writer. Like I want to be an executive. Like this is what I need to be doing. Mm. And so I started to pursue that and I became an executive. So I was an executive in comedy development at NBC. Wow. And I got there and like a month in, I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> I made a terrible mistake. You felt your soul dying slowly. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, no, no, this. Yeah. I actually, yeah, this is not what I want to do. But the funny thing is, is, now I've made all these great relationships with like the studio and the network. And uh, when I wanted to make the shift, they were, that's what helped me get the job is that the people at the studio and the network were like, you should hire this girl. So it was a sort of traditional path. And then, um, so my new advice, I suppose, is become a network executive and then get those people to push you onto <laughs> a show. <laughs> Wow, that that's a pretty unique path. I've never heard of going to the, you know, becoming the executive and then leaving that yes. uh, space to be more creative within the writer, writer's room. Yes. I think the only reason I was able to do it is, is that I was there for such a short period of time that I hadn't pissed off anybody. Like nobody knew who I was. Like I was the person in the meeting that didn't say anything. So like, I think if you were there long enough, people would be like, oh, no, I don't, you know, like there would be some baggage connected with me and there just wasn't because nobody had any idea who I was. I follow a lot of writers on Twitter, television writers specifically, and it seems like the culture has changed. The work culture, corporate culture 
in terms of what is demanded or expected of writers, or at least what the writers are expecting of the experience. And what I mean is my view of how writers were treated back in the 80s, 90s, and probably 2000s is that it was like, okay, you're in this room and you know it doesn't matter if it's a 12-hour day or a 14-hour day or whatever, you're going to crank out this number of pages and this number of you know jokes and we're going to get this thing done. And it, I think it was perceived as kind of abusive toward you know writing staff. Has that changed in terms of the work ethics that is expected of young writers coming into a writer's room where there's more acknowledgement of work-life balance, that type of thing, or is it still a grind? I think, I think there has been a shift. I think there really has been a shift. You know, for me, I'm a mom, like I got three kids and so I just want to work efficiently and I want to like get in there. I want to get my work done and I want to go home. Like, I don't want to sit and watch like an hour of YouTube clips and like do bits about it. I mean, that's fun, but also, you know, it's like, let's, let's get home. And so I think it has changed. I honestly think too, there's more women showrunners now. And I think women, women especially are like looking to be efficient and get home. (laughs) You know, there's like an old thing, like never work on a show where the showrunner is getting divorced mm. because the hours will be <laughs> really brutal. I could see that. Because they don't yeah. want to go home. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? They don't like, want to just, have that confrontation. Yeah. They don't like they just stay. And so, yeah, I think I think it has changed. I think there is there is still a mentality. You know, I know Friends is a great example of they had crazy hours and it would be like, they were there till two in the morning. Like, is this the funniest joke that this moment could possibly have? Yeah. And I think there's a certain street cred that, you know, that that built or that, and I think it was something people sort of admired that, you know, and Mm. what was also really cool is like, they were making friends. Like it was a great show and you saw it on the, like, it was amazing and after Friends, there were shows that were also there till two, three in the morning that weren't Friends. Mm-hmm. You know? and yeah. So I don't know that those hours is maybe in that situation, those hours is what made that show great. I don't know, you know, but I think just because you're putting in those hours, sometimes there's diminishing returns as well. Like, I think there's a way to work smart and be prepared. And, you know, I'm a big believer, like I have like a gazillion calendars and deadlines. Like this story is going to be broken by this date. This script's going to be done by this date. Like we're, these are the markers we're hitting. And so there's never, you know, it just depends. It just depends who's running the show. There's a, somebody said, I want to, I don't know who it is. I think there was like, it was like a big bang writer. This isn't mine. So I don't want to take credit for it, but I, I love it, which is basically when you're a writer in TV, you go through the development process, you write a really good script and then somebody, if it you 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 if your script is so good, someone might say to you, okay, great. Now here, run the 7-Eleven, which I think like <laughs> speaks to it's two different jobs. Like you can be a great writer, but then you have to run a show, right. which is a whole other animal, you know? Right. Yeah. My perception of just the workplace culture in general, not just writers' rooms, but just everywhere, people are wanting to work smarter. Like if they can get eight hours worth of work done in six hours why do I want to put on a show here that I'm actually still working for two extra hours? Or Totally. I think that that's one of the great things about the younger generation is that they're changing the way older folks are 
you know, have to view uh, work ethic and what does it really mean to be a hard worker or a good worker or an efficient worker? A hundred percent. I think there's just like, they're being smart about it and there's less they'll put up with. A friend of mine who's a writer, we were talking about like the Me Too movement and she was cracking me up because she was like, I'm so proud of them. She's like, it would never occur to me to be like, no, you can't treat me like that. <laughs> right. Like it was just like, good for them. She's like, what this generation is amazing. Yeah. And we were, it was, it was sort of dark humor, but we were, we were laughing about it. But I think you're right that it's, you know, why are we just because this is how things were, doesn't mean it's how they should be. Right. And so I think like having those conversations is good. And I think now people, people want to be on shows that just like work efficiently. It's a good show, you know, and as, as you're a writer, your priorities change, you know, when, when I was younger, like it was all about like the cool show and I want to be on, you know, whatever. And then as you get older, it's like, I want to work on a show with nice people with good hours that like enables me to like have time with my family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what matters. Quality of life. Yeah, yeah exactly. So nine episodes are up Yes. on Doogie Kamuloha MD and it's a 10 episode season. Yes. Okay. So we have the final episode coming up. When do you find out about season two, whether it gets picked up? Great question. We're hearing really good things and it seems like all things are moving that way. Unclear, but we're hopeful that, uh, you know, the network has been so supportive. Our reviews have been really good. It's one of the weird things about working in streaming is like the lack of ratings. You know, like I'm so used to, I'm like a thousand years old that like I wake up and you're like, how'd, how'd the show do? And you right. like go to your ratings and see, and you know, it affects the whole day. You talk about them, you know, around the water cooler. Uh -huh. And so it's been oddly nice, but weird to, you know, the show airs and then we just go about our lives and- just cross your fingers and edge of your seat. <laughs> yes, yes. But the good news is, is that everybody at the network has been so supportive and they love the show. And I know that they're really excited that the reviews have been so good. You know, especially I think we were all pleasantly surprised at how well the show was reviewed, given it's a reboot, given it's on Disney Plus. I think sometimes people can, you know, you just you never know. And so it was it was reviewed pretty favorably. And so I think everyone's hopeful. But I mean, you never know. You never know. Yeah, that has to be so suspenseful as you put all this effort into it. You're living over in Oahu and you've created this family of people, this, the writer's room, and then you're all just waiting, <laughs> waiting for the word to come down from above. I've heard that the data is difficult to find. Like even the folks that have shows on Netflix, like they don't know. Like Netflix won't even tell them what the ratings are, what the downloads are. Yeah, it you know, I think they they sort of share what they what they want to share and yeah, you know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a weird time. Well, Courtney King, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and good luck with season 2. I hope it gets picked up and I can't wait to see the rest of the season. I'm on episode 9. I'll be watching that tonight. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, 
Go find your dream path. 